Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You too can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited. Conservation for a continent. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. It's Cason Short with the Standard Sportsman Podcast, joined as always with my co-host Brent Birch. Uh, and we've got a pretty cool guest lined up today, someone that uh, most of y'all will be familiar with, a knowledgeable guy and a good friend of ours. Um, before we get to him, Brent, how are you doing today? Well, I'm pretty good, pretty good. Obviously, we're uh, hurtling towards the early spec season, which we've we've done an episode cuss and discussing that. But uh, I'm sure I'll get out there and chase them despite the much-needed rain that somebody's thinking we're going to get. We'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, it's it's dry. I mean, it looks like a dust bowl over here with the wind blowing today. And I guess by the time everyone listens to this, we will have, have opened and, and maybe gotten enough rain to settle the dust, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. That's exactly right. But yeah, our, our guest today, um, which I, I met a few years ago, he came and he was one of the panelists on our first uh, Duck Season Social, which for for those listening and those aren't aware, we we host we as in the Arkansas Game and Fish Foundation, which I'm on the board of, hosts an event during the the first split in the Arkansas season. That's basically a exactly what it sounds like. It's a social gathering of of waterfowlers, uh, followed up by you know some dinner and some drinks and a good time, and then uh, we've done a panel discussion. Uh, and Mike was uh, this particular guest. Uh, Mike Brazier, who's a senior waterfowl scientist with Ducks Unlimited, was one of our panelists that first year and, uh, you know, did a great job there. And we've we've traded commentary back and forth. And I asked him questions here and there. And and he's always quick to respond, which I appreciate and, and really appreciate him coming on the show. So, Mike, uh, welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Kaysen. Uh It's good to be on with you. I became aware of your your podcast a few weeks ago and listened to a few episodes and appreciate what y'all are doing. I, I think there's there's certainly a need for, for good, effective, honest communication about all the things that we care about in the waterfowl, hunting, uh, conservation field. So appreciate the work y'all are doing and thanks for the opportunity to join you. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now they've come out with a loadout 30 go box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it, when it hadn't rained in a while. It's a 
amazing product. Yeah, so I, I use them a, a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a thirty that stays in the boat. Uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it, and it's nice to know that clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the the fifteen has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently, and it's great to to use that fifteen as an ammo box. So I've got all the kids' ammo, gauge reducers hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah. The Yeti Go box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas and leather bags and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com in their Birmingham, Alabama and Wilson, Arkansas stores and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. Yeah, it almost, uh, it, it makes me nervous that you listen. I wonder if we need to go back and write any wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no. Amateur scientists. <laughs> <laughs> no don't worry about uh, that man it's all sit good there and take notes while you're listening don't you <laughs> yeah I, i'm mainly critiquing your guests like brian davis or somebody like that you know so <laughs> no it's all good well tell us a little bit i mean uh, we're familiar i know you, you got your start you're kind of raised there in north mississippi but tell us a little bit about your background um how you how did you get started what what made you want to travel down this path yeah uh, I, you know, when I, when I tell people I grew up in Mississippi and they hear that I'm in Waterfowl, Ducks Unlimited, something like that, I think most people assume that I uh, cut my teeth and grew up in the in the Delta of Mississippi because that's always sort of known as the, the hotbed of waterfowl hunting in that state. But, uh, but I did not grow up in the Delta. I grew up in the North Central Hills. Uh, if you take the state of Mississippi, cut it in half and then put a pin sort of like dead center of that northern half, that's about where I grew up. Well, in Calhoun County uh, is where I grew up, the little town of Bruce. And it's one of the few counties there in North Mississippi where even to this day still does not have a four-lane road of any type running through it. Um, there are, but, but nevertheless, we did have some good duck hunting in that landscape, uh, mainly attributable to a series of flood control reservoirs that were constructed there in the mid-20th um, century. I grew up closest to Grenada Lake, which some of your listeners may be most familiar with Grenada Lake as like a trophy crappie fishery, one of the oh, best, yeah. if not the best in, in the world. So I was spoiled, certainly on uh, on access to good fishing. I grew up um, in the Schooner River Valley, 20 minutes from the Gums Crossing boat launch, boat landing. And so I spent many, many days on the lake, uh, on Grenada Lake, also Enid. Um, it's north of, of Grenada. Um, so, yeah, I got into all sorts of shenanigans with my my friends, uh, college, uh, high school buddies uh, at Grenada Lake. No telling how many times, how many days I spent on that lake skiing, fishing, fishing for crappie, catfishing, trot line, you know, the whole, whole nine yards. Uh, lots of great memories there. But one of the other thing, getting back to waterfowl, the other thing that, that those flood control reservoirs ended up providing was a lot of backwater sloughs as a result of some of the channelizations of the rivers that go into Grenada Lake, Yalabusha River on the south arm, the Schooner River on the north arm. And both of those river floodplains provided a lot of um, backwater sloughs and, and overbank flooding of agricultural fields. And 
um, there was a pretty strong duck hunting culture in that area. My dad was on the local Ducks Unlimited committee. Uh, he duck hunted with a lot of his buddies. He didn't grow up duck hunting, but whenever he moved back after he left the army, um, uh, he, he started duck hunting with some buddies and that was, I always thought it was mysterious and magical whenever he would, um, you know, mom, mom would take my brother and I off to church on Sunday morning and we'd get home and, and we'd come back and dad and his buddies would have their, um, had their pile of ducks of all these different brightly colored birds. And they, we saw the fun that they were having. And, you know, I was intoxicated by that a little bit. And, and so, uh, shorten the, shorten the story a little bit and just say, that's where, that's where it began for me. The, the love of the outdoors and always just really connected strongly with waterfowl. And then you grow up in North Mississippi where I did, you know, it's, it's not a whole lot to do, um, outside of hunting and fishing. And so I did all of that. I was a hunter. I was a, I was a fisher. I was a trapper, um, pretty much found a way to do one of those activities year round with the exception being turkey hunting. And that surprises a lot of people this past year was the first time I ever turkey hunted. And so now I'm, I'm hooked on that. So, uh, so anyway, that's sort of my, my personal background. I went to Mississippi state, got in touch with a guy there by the name of Dr. Rick Kaminsky. And of course a lot, uh, I could say the rest is history at that point because Rick opened a ton of doors for me, highly renowned, very well-known waterfowl ecologist and scientist. And sort of, he took me under his proverbial wing and introduced me to many, many people and helped me network in this, uh, in this community. And then I did my part by working hard, staying out of trouble, at least doing a few good things in the classroom and, uh, got my master's degree at Mississippi state studying um, the breeding behavior of male mallards up in Canada. That's a really fascinating topic and one that I, uh, that, uh, you know, if I wasn't doing this, if I did go the academic route, I have to believe like a teaching as a professor or something like that. I, th I think I'd be doing some kind of behavioral ecology or reproductive ecology in waterfowl. It's a really cool topic. Um, from there, went on to Ohio State, uh, got my PhD there, another waterfowl related uh, project studying waterfowl use of restored wetlands in the northern part of that state and worked around the Great Lakes region for a bit and uh, then wound up in Lafayette, Louisiana as a Ducks Unlimited employee working out of the Gulf Coast Joint Venture Office and a few years ago had the opportunity to move to Memphis, got closer to home, um, opportunity to to serve as a, in a waterfowl scientist position and that's where I am now, been with DU for 18 years now, it's hard to believe. That's awesome. Uh, and a cool track record, you know, be able to stay and not have to, you know, bounce around all over the place to, to, you know, keep climbing the ladder. But, uh, but yeah, and another thing I didn't mention when we introduced you to, uh, that Casey and I are dealing with a professional podcaster. He's not quite the amateur <laughs> that we, that the I don't are. know about that. I don't know how much professionalism there is. I just kind of muddle through it, you know? Yeah. But yeah, Mike's also the host of, of DU's official podcast and, and puts out some, some great content, uh, that, that I'm sure if you're listening to our podcast, you're probably listening to DU's podcast as well. So, uh, kind of forgot about that, but I know, uh, let's kind of start jumping into, you know, some of the things you you've worked on or, or are working on, but let's, let's kind of start with the newest deal, um, and explain, you know, at a high level, this, this whole duck DNA, uh, effort that, that DU is, is got underway here in the last, I don't know, last few weeks, I guess, but, uh, you know, kind of what that's about and, and what you're hoping to achieve out of it. 
Yeah, it is. The, the name of the program is or project is Duck DNA. It is cl- a collaborative effort between Ducks Unlimited and the University of Texas El Paso. And our involvement, interestingly enough, uh, would not have happened if it weren't for the podcast uh, that we have here. I uh, ended up welcoming Dr. Phil Lavretsky from UTEP onto our several episodes to talk about some of the genetic work that he's doing, uh, learning about some very um, – Making some very unexpected discoveries regarding the genetics of mallards in eastern North America, uh, pretty much all of North America by by this time. But the, one of the one of the key discoveries, the most interesting things he he found through some of the more advanced genetic techniques that he does, is is that decades of releases of game farm mallards on the east coast associated with shooting preserves has resulted in in uh, the the introduction of those game farm mallard genes into the wild mallard population and there's several episodes phil's been on a ton of different podcasts and so i would imagine that many of your participants have have heard some of those but in a nutshell when you re- the Millions of game farm mallards have tens of millions have been released on the East Coast uh, in those shooting preserves uh, over the over the past, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years, maybe even longer than that. The assumption was that those birds would either die or they wouldn't be successful reproducing. But I guess the lesson to be told is that if you release enough of them, some of them are successful at surviving and breeding. Uh, hybridizing, so to speak, with uh, with wild mallards. There are genetic differences between game farm mallards. There are, are morphological, physical differences, and we're we're beginning to think, beginning to see there are physiological differences and behavioral differences between game farm mallards and wild mallards. And that's kind of to be expected when you think about uh, how that how that came about and how game farm mallards were bred. And so, basically, to the point that Phil discovered that if you shoot a uh, a mallard in the Atlantic Flyway, there's a very high probability that that bird has some game farm genetics in it. And so then the question is, well, why does it matter? Well, that's where some of the other work that Phil and Brian Davis and Mike Schumer and others are conducting comes into play is to answer that question. Like, does it even matter? I mentioned that some of the preliminary work they're doing is finding differences in morphological characteristics, uh, wing size, bill size, lamellar spacing, things of that nature. We know there are differences. The next thing is to is to ask the question, for those hybrid birds that have some of those different characteristics, are there reproductive consequences? Are there survival consequences? And then if there are, then you begin to imagine this scenario where if that continues, you're you're introducing those genes, those maladaptive genes would be the word we would use into a, uh, into the wild mallard population. Um, and there's some evidence that those genes are kind of uh, the, the presence of those genes is moving a little bit west. And so from a research standpoint, that's what a lot of our partner scientists are looking into. I want to be clear that, you know, Ducks Unlimited in this Duck DNA project is acting as a facilitator between the researchers and the hunters. Uh, we are we are entering into this primarily to help collect data at unprecedented scales uh, to help the researchers with with their questions. We're not going into it with stated objectives for the type of research that we want to see conducted or anything of that nature. Uh, we're leaving that to uh, to the researchers, which is typically what we do, except for those type of science needs that we have related to our conservation, our our, our conservation planning and conservation delivery and things of that nature. So 
Um, so that's sort of the very brief backstory. There's also an exploding field of linking genetic uh, information to um, to behavioral um, to to behaviors, to migration tendencies, to winter site fidelity in in other groups of birds. And so the idea that there's a very real possibility that there might be genetic signatures linking ducks in some locations to certain um, wintering geographies and could be uh, could eventually identify links between genetic signatures and let's say reproductive success it kind of gets to this whole super hen idea are there genetic differences between those birds that re- that are that are productive at different levels and can we detect those and of course, then there's the question of, well, even if you detect them, then what can you do about it from a management standpoint? But sometimes you just have to incrementally get to those those points. So there are a number of research questions wrapped up in the study of waterfowl genetics. One of the pieces of or the critical piece of information that those scientists need is is the genetic material from a large sample of birds. And that's where duck DNA comes into play. Phil Lavretsky and Brian Davis, Mike Schumer, others in the community have been working with state agencies, private landowners, you know, on sort of a smaller scale, targeted scale to collect tissue samples in various locations. And we got to talking with Phil about this and um, we said, you know, is there a way for us to do a, to engage the waterfowl hunters in a more concerted um, project or approach, get them to send in tissue samples of their harvested birds from all across the country at all throughout the the hunting season. So you get that full picture. Are there genetic differences between those mallards that show up in South Louisiana in November versus those that show up in December or January? Those types of questions will will have the potential eventually to to ask and and answer. Uh, And there may not be any detectable genetic difference, but but if there are, can you then link that genetic signature to a certain breeding geography or breeding region, large breeding region? Then you can begin to think about some management and conservation planning implications. And, you know, it's, it's just it's a field that is too rich in possibilities right now from my perspective for us to not try to, to get into and help those researchers um, that sort of make that connection because hunters are a crucial resource here. In providing those tissue samples, they're able to, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate, ultimate sampling opportunity. Phil is over the moon on the ability to do this. So fundamentally, that's what it's about. Folks can go to duckdna.com, learn more about it. You can apply to participate. We're wanting to, and I'm going to stop here in just a second and let y'all ask some questions, <laughs> but um we're trying to enlist the help of somewhere around 250 up and up to 300 hunters this year to collect somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 tissue samples from mallards and mallard like ducks that being model duck black duck mexican duck and then any hybrids we want to add the hybrids to it because that's just a fun fascinating aspect of of waterfowl breeding ecology they're such prevalent uh hybridizing um with you know cross species then what we do, uh, what Phil's going to do, he'll run the analyses and, and then we will provide a certificate of pedigree 
to the hunters that are participating that have submitted their tissue samples. If it's a mallard-like duck, it'll tell them like what percentage of wild mallard genes it has. It'll tell if it's a hybrid between a mallard and a black duck, a mallard and a Mexican duck, some of those species that are hard to tell apart. Uh, and then if you shoot a hybrid between, let's say, a mallard and a gadwall, you know, brewer's duck, you could send that in and you would get a certificate of, of parentage vetted scientifically through DNA analysis that it is a it is what you thought it was and it will tell you if the male was the mallard uh, you know if the if the dad was a mallard or if the if the female if the mom was a mallard it can tell you all that type of stuff so um, there's a number of other things that we can dig into there but uh, the most important part go to duckdna.com learn a little bit more about it, sign up, apply to participate. If you haven't already, we've, we've already got over a thousand applicants. We've done our first round of selection already. We've got about a hundred kits out there. So there's going to be some additional random selections um, probably in late November. And that's going to focus on some of the more Southern states whose seasons are, are just about to get underway. Yeah, that's going to be super cool. Uh, once that, all that data comes back and, and this isn't, you know, everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but you know, lots of people have gotten in the past from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to clip a wing, you know, and do some studies off of that. This is actually, if I understand it correctly, y'all are asking them to clip a portion of their a duck's tongue. That's right. Yeah, and that's that's what's going to be sent back, and that gives enough tissue sample to to tell what's what. Genetically? To do the genetics. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah, that's we're wild. sending out each kit. If you're selected to participate. You'll, you'll be mailed a kit. Uh, that kit contains instructions, contains a little infographic. It, it contains vials, five vials, one for each of five ducks that we'll ask you to harvest. Uh, it has return shipping, return address label. It's free of charge. It is. This is all made possible by some generous donors that we've reached out to and that are helping us with this. Uh, so... Yeah, it's, and this is the pilot year. We've already encountered some hiccups. We're having to order replacement vials because a certain number of the people that received the first round of vials reported that they are leaking, uh, leaking some of the buffer solution that preserves the tissue. Uh, so we're sending out replacement vials. And so it's, you know, we knew this was going to happen. Uh, we knew there would be some issues. Let me say that. We didn't know what those issues were going to be. Um, but we're asking for people's patience and cooperation as we go through this and the, the response has been has been really remarkable for those people that have signed up and that have have been selected and we get we're getting people that are emailing us saying i noticed i wasn't selected or really like to participate if you get anybody that drops out um know that i'm here i'm happy to help you know so it's it's super cool to see the level of engagement i will say i'm not surprised because as you just said brent hunters have been critical participants in scientific data collection for the waterfowl management community for nearly a century, whether it's through reporting the harvested bands or reporting your harvest or sending in those wing samples. Um, this is just another extension of that, and it's taking that type of hunter participation to, to a different level. And we're asking them to do a lot. Uh, they're happily doing it so far. We've already got some submissions that are in our little online uh, information or sample submission portal. And so, so far, so good. I appreciate everybody participating. Yeah. Very cool. Can't wait to see that data accumulate. 
Yeah, we're going to try to do it next year as well. I'll go ahead and say that. So if you don't get selected, if you if you weren't selected in the first round, and if you're in a southern state, you certainly have a good chance to be selected or you still have a chance to be selected in November, December. And then we're going to try to continue this next year as well. So, uh, yeah, just just stay tuned. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, you mentioned one thing there when you were talking about it, and it's, it's a topic uh, we discussed at length last year when we were chasing specs out here. But you mentioned site fidelity, and I kind of want to shift gears into that and to, to get you to give a 30,000-foot overview of what, what site fidelity is, and then maybe we'll dive in a little further and ask some more pointed questions. Sure. Uh, you know, we were kind of talking offline about this, and and I'll say it here. I'm not an expert in that field. That's one of the things that happens whenever you get you know out of academia you and into a position like what I have or any of our state, federal, waterfowl biologists, you're expected to know a lot. You're expected to know a lot about everything, but none of us do. Um, <laughs> I know a little bit about a lot of things. This is one of those. Uh, so I can't go very deep on this, but that's one of the one of the things that we do. And I think it's what y'all do as well, Case and then Brent with your podcast, is we go to the experts. You know, even though we to get important messages out there, we go to the to the true experts, the people that are in academia actively doing the research. So folks like Doug, Dr. Doug Osborne, um, uh, Dr. Brad Cohen, um, Dr. Ryan Askren, those are some of the folks that are here local, but there's other folks in California that are doing some of this work. Dr. Mitch Wiegman, University of Saskatoon, uh, University of Saskatchewan, um, and, and a whole host of other people are working on these projects using these new fancy um, GPS tracking devices that are able to get at this question. Um, Dr. Bart Ballard, I could go on, I'll, I'll stop there, but <laughs> are able to get at the, this question at much finer detail than what we ever have done. And so fundamentally, when we say either phylopatry or fidelity, it essentially means returning to the place of origin or place of previous occupancy. Uh, in waterfowl, for the longest time, when we talked about phylopatry, we talked about either breeding phylopatry, females, female ducks returning to the places they bred in a previous year or natal phylopatry, that would be the return of a young bird back to the, the place where it was hatched. Uh, and so those, uh, that's the type, that aspect of phylopatry in ducks had been, and waterfowl in general, had been studied uh, more heavily, partly because when waterfowl go back to the breeding season, to their breeding grounds, if they're if they're active breeders, they go back and they stay somewhere for a period of time. They're not roaming around the landscape, you know, as they're I mean, they're going back to try to get to that to a place that, that they're going to nest. And so they're they're that they're tied to that location if they're nesting. And so it's easier to, to kind of track that return back to that 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 uh, the smaller geographies and that um, that they're doing. So um, so that's. That's the kind of the the period of the of the biological cycle that had been studied most. We you can from that what we found, or researchers found, is that um, the degree of phylopatry varies among duck species. And one of the general patterns here is that is that species whose habitats, breeding habitats, are more stable will show higher, more stable from year to year will show show higher rates 
of phytopatry, like canvasbacks. They nest, they breed, nest over water in semi-permanent and permanent wetlands. It's not as much variation from year to year in whether those wetlands are available. So you see higher degrees of phytopatry among that species. Contrast that with, let's say, a pintail or let's say blue-winged teal, which are are have a strong affinity for seasonal wetlands. Uh, they are they will they have much lower rates of phytopatry, and that type of 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 situation has just developed over the years and it's out of necessity. I mean, if you go back to a prairie prairie pothole that we know goes through these drought and wet cycles, it's not going to be there some years. So if that wetland is not there, you're going to go to a different location. So those species that are more closely tied to those, um, those more highly variable environments are more likely to show lower rates of breeding site fidelity or phytopatry. Uh, geese show higher rates of breeding site phytopatry. Um, and the other thing, I guess, the other thing I'll say, and then we'll talk a little bit about winter site fidelity. The ducks are unique when you compare it to, let's say, other birds that have been studied um, in, in songbirds, for example. It's the male bird the, that goes back, migrates back first. And I'll try not to get off, get, get too deep in, into all this, although it's really, it's, it, it's pretty fascinating aspect of waterfowl ecology, waterfowl behavior. Um, so most other bird species show what's called male biased phylopatry, where the male is the one that, sh- go, that shows the higher rate of, of phylopatry to those breeding sites. And just think about that with songbirds returning to breed in the spring. The males show up first. They establish a territory. They start, they start calling and trying to attract a female. Then the females come up, and, and then they, they pair up, and then they breed. That's in contrast to ducks, for example, in this case, what we'll talk about, where it's the female. It's called female-biased phylopatry. The female is the one that chooses the nesting site and that is more prone to, to phylopatry, to that breeding site. The principal reason for that difference is related to early pairing in waterfowl, or early pairing in ducks, mallards, gadwall, pintails, um, some, a few other species will begin, uh, well, shovelers, widgeon, we can go down the list, certainly on the dabbling duck species, will start pairing in, the, in late fall, early winter. By January, mallards, black ducks, pintails, a lot of those species, you're looking at 80 to 90% of the, of the hens are already paired. Uh, and so without getting off into why do they pair early, I mean, that's just, that's one of the reasons why we see this difference is because that early pairing allows those females. I mean, it's advantageous for the females to be paired early. The other difference, I guess I'm kind of going off into this. The the waterfowl are big bodied (laughs) birds. They have the capacity to store that fat. They have to to store a lot of fat. Um, And then, so if you think about, well, why, why does that matter? It's because being paired early allows you to have, uh, gives that female the opportunity or positions that that means so a couple of things are happening that male is trying to secure his breeding opportunity as quick as possible they're seasonally monogamous in ducks uh geese are different because they 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 have they have lifelong pair bonds but in ducks it's it's seasonal monogamy so these males are forming pairs anew each year so are the females and so that male has a limited opportunity it's a male bias sex ratio so some males get left out so a male it's advantageous for a male to breed or to mate with a female as quickly as possible to secure that mate and so why does a female care about having a mate early on what 
other research, behavioral research has shown is that paired birds, paired uh, female that's, that is paired is dominant to unpaired birds. And by dominant, we mean she has access to better resources. Um, she is able to, um, and that, that's, I guess that, that's primarily, we don't have to go any farther than that. She has access to better resources and the male defends her from, uh, from interruptions by other, uh, other individuals. She's able to focus more on feeding. And so there's where it becomes advantageous for the female to be paired early as well. And if you're paired early, then that is what enables that female biased phylopatry. So it's really cool stuff. So that's all on kind of the breeding uh, side of things. And from a winter site fidelity, that's an area where we've just started to learn about it at a level that we haven't been able to before as a result of these GPS, solar powered GPS tracking devices that allow birds to be followed year after year. We've been able to get some of that data from band recoveries, but with band recoveries, you only get two locations. You get where they were banded and you get where they were harvested. A bird uh, that's harvested in, in Iowa in October or November may have eventually come down to Arkansas to the exact same spot where it was the previous year. But if it was harvested in Iowa and you got the band recovery there, you would never know if it was going to come back to Arkansas, if it, may, if it made it back. So these GPS tracking devices enable you to get around that unknown and provide better data on the full track of those birds, at least the ones that do come back to, to Arkansas. And the other thing is, if you in order to know if a bird came back to Arkansas, if you're dealing with bands, you got to shoot it. You got to harvest it, right? So, um, so yeah, that's um, – what else? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a question. Yeah, I've got a question yeah, go on, on this. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because, you, you know, you talked a lot about the hen driving things breeding ground-wise, which makes total sense because um, mm. she's, she's got everything working. I, I, I've heard some commentary, and, and I, I wanted to almost double-check, and this is from another sci waterfowl scientist, that hens are also driving where ducks go, trade, forage, whatever, driving uh, a lot of their activity on the wintering grounds as well. And, uh, whether that's, you know, maybe I didn't hear it right, whatever it is, but if, but if, if that is the case and we're relying on hens to kind of be that group navigator, whether that's just with her partner, whether that's with her, you know, her crew, she runs around with whatever, uh, where do we get with, you know, picking these hens out? Where does that relate into? And I know that you get into the whole hunter harvest and whether it matters, whether it doesn't matter, all that, but. It's, it seems like if the hen's driving where the ducks go and you got a good contingent of ducks coming to your piece of property or to your rice field or to your set of woods, if you want that hen to keep leading the, leading the group there, you may, you may think twice about shooting them. I mean, is that, is there any relation there? Well, I, I don't know that I don't have a, have the full context of what that other person might have said, but I, I think I can kind of draw some inference and some a few simple. Um, well, that's what you get with amateur scientists like myself well, trying to repeat you know, it. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. You know, there are a few logical outcomes of of that idea, and and one is that okay, it makes sense. Like, well, so if you have. If a male is paired with a female, then yes, she's going to drive where that, that male goes because that male is going to not going to want to let her go. He's going to stay with her. They're paired. There's constant maintenance of that pair bond. Now, she may be testing out other mates 
uh, throughout that winter season. That's kind of known to happen as well. But that male is going to stick with that female. So from the, from an individual pair perspective, yes, the females are going to be driving where it goes. It's also reasonable to conclude or to, to think that um, because unpaired males, let's say you have a group of unpaired females and a group of unpaired males, the males are more likely to be the ones seeking out, I think this is logical, uh, more likely to be seeking out the female. But I mean, in reality, there is mutual there is mutual gain to be had for those birds to find one another. I'm not uh, I'm not aware of any uh, any you know, hard data that that clearly shows that females are are driving the location or the distributions of 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 ducks. I, th- I think that'd be difficult to to demonstrate em- empirically the way I'm thinking about it. That doesn't mean there's not some data out there that that shows something um, like yeah. I, because following or driving sort of implies that one happens before the other and then the other comes along after it. And, and, and I'm not sure about that. I think there has been a lot of work done over the, over the years to, to see if there are differences in distributions of band recoveries between males and females. Now I'll be honest, I've looked at that data um, a couple of years ago. I don't remember what it is. Uh, I think there are some differences in the, the, the pace of migration between males and females. And um, I, you know, like with, with songbirds, we go back to that, females will migrate farther south. Males try to stay closer to that breeding ground um, because they want to get to that breeding territory first. I'm, I can't, I'll just be honest, I do not remember what the pattern shows in waterfowl. Um, so I'll just kind of have to stop, stop there and, and say I'd have to do more. I have to do more uh, research on that uh, or defer to somebody else who's actually got the data. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, we see those, you know, you, you see when they're here, when they're in Arkansas, you know, we will see those courtship flights, which, you know, be a hen and seven or eight drakes just chasing her like crazy uh, yeah. at the treetops. Um, which is not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking right. about more of a, a grouping of, of ducks, uh, you know, following some hens leads, but I could see how that'd be really hard to prove. Yeah. Well, they definitely have to find one another and, uh, for that pairing to occur. Um, and history shows that they're pretty good at making that happen. Um, but who leads and, and who initiates that leadership? I, I don't know. And when it occurs, I'm not sure. And it's going to vary by species because, you know, not all species of ducks, even dabbling ducks pair early, blue wing teal, smaller bodied bird, not as, not as able to, um, not as well equipped to pack on a lot of, um, a lot of fat stores. And so the, the benefit of pairing early isn't as strong for smaller bodied birds. Same with diving ducks. They don't, they tend not to pair as early. That's hypothesized to be because of their foraging behavior where the male and like, if you're, if you're going to pair early, that's only beneficial if there's a pretty strong probability that you're going to retain that pair bond, be able to defend that female and, and, you know, uh, get a good return on that investment. Foraging behavior of diving ducks necessitates those birds, the male and female being out of visual contact for some period of time. And the male goes, dives underwater and the female goes, dives underwater. If the female comes up before the male does, and if they're mistimed on when they're on the surface of the water, you know, there's the opportunity for that female to be usurped by another male. And so there's some hypothesis there as to why we don't see early pairing as much in diving ducks, but a fascinating topic and a lot of different, a lot of different questions to ask there. 
The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Sitka Gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex. And over the last 50 years, Gore-Tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt-sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sitka Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper, vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable, removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds, let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed. You're kind of familiar with, with what we do here, especially on the, the white front side and, mm-hmm. and how religious we are about early water. And I'm a pretty firm believer uh, in those phylopatric bonds and kind of that early dependable habitat, I think. I think it's really done well for us over the decades. Um, and the transmitter data is starting to show that. We're, we're seeing that was even some of these Southwest Louisiana birds that they first place they put their feet down is right here. They spend a few days and they move on about their migration. So it's it's showing to, to prove beneficial. But I'm starting to hear a lot of conversations about people either be it for banding projects or just trying to, quote unquote, imprint mallards in their woods. You hear about flying corn on in their woods later in the year. So from anecdotally, my opinion is that you're you're better off to provide early, you know, dependable habitat than trying to feed them in February like that. And my view of that is coming from kind of having watched some of these banding projects go on, that it seems to be a kind of a constant revolving door of ducks in February. Like they are moving, they're migrating, it's constantly evolving. So I don't know if those those two things are equal in terms of trying to create those bonds do you have an opinion or any insight to that well i i guess i i can try to think it through i don't have any data on this uh what what i can say is that you are right when it comes february march those birds are in breeding mode they're a lot of them are paired um i yeah, there's a lot of ton of interesting questions here. Um, those birds are paired. They're thinking about getting back to the breeding grounds. Um, I mean, obviously, they need fuel. They need food. You know, one of the questions that, that I would have is like, okay, what of the birds that you're that you're attracting at that time of year? Are they paired? Are they the healthy birds? Maybe they're not the healthy birds. Maybe they're the ones that are that are in there um, trying to top off their fuel tank because for whatever reason they haven't been able to, uh, they haven't been paired. They haven't been as successful, uh, acquiring a mate and, and uh, achieving that mate defense, territory defense, the, ad- the advantages of early pairing, um, are there, you know, so that's a question of those birds 
physically um, different from from others? I, I mean, that's a question for Ryan, Doug, and and uh, Brad, and others. I'm sure they've thought about that, but that's one of the things that come to my mind. But if, you know, if I'm a paired bird and um, I've got my female mate and I'm in good condition. The last thing that I'm going to want to do is go into a situation where I'm taking that hen into a place with with 20 or 30 other Drake Mallards uh, using this example. That's not what I would want to do. Um, so that's a curious question there. I don't know what those what the folks um, are, are finding there or what they've they've thought about. Um, you know, it's so. So there's a lot of a lot of other things going on uh, for waterfowl at that time of year besides just feeding. And so all of those other things are also going to be driving their perception, however that happens in a duck's brain, their perception of the quality of that particular site. Um, I could imagine a scenario where if where you could say the best thing that I need to be doing in February and March is to provide heavy escape cover, heavy cover to allow intact pairs to seclude themselves from one another. Now, obviously, there are ducks out there that, that need and want and, and go to that food that is provided in, in late February and March, and all ducks have to continue to feed and yada, yada, yada. That, but, but it's like it, for any given duck at any given point in time, there's going to be some resource that's more important to it. So, um, there's a lot of things going on out there, and there's, I guess what I'm saying is there's no absolute. To your point, Kaysen, asking about is it better to provide it early, is it better to provide it late? I think the key, if you're thinking about fidelity and trying to make your place as attractive to waterfowl, whether we're talking mallards, white fronts, snow geese, whatever, is to provide the resources they need consistently throughout the times that are important to them. And that's going to be the entire winter season. Um, and it's the worst thing that you could do is introduce variability in when you provide those resources in terms of either year to year or place to place. Um, because one of the, one of the things I didn't address is like the why, why is phytopatry or fidelity even advantageous. And there are a few hypotheses about this, uh, but kind of the most likely one is that it's uh, it's what I think it's like the the familiar home hypothesis or something of that nature. In that, um, if returning to a place that you've had experience with before and that you've had success with before, whether success is measured in survival or reproduction or acquiring food, um, it it behooves you to go back to that location. Uh, and it, your, your probability of achieving a favorable outcome is going to be, to the, given the information that you have as a duck, is, is going to be greatest if you go back to the place where you experienced that success uh, the previous, previous year. The same type of behavioral uh, outcome happens to humans all the time. We see it in kids. We see it in adults. Uh, we wrote an article with the U Magazine a few years ago, and we used the analogy of how kids, uh, when when not assigned a seat, like in a in a classroom, if they're given the opportunity for free choice, if they go to a go go to a seat on day one and they have a good experience, they're not disturbed or whatever, and if they have the opportunity for free choice the second day, they're going to go back to that same seat more than likely. 
In contrast, if they go to that seat on day one and there's a major disruption, there's a lot of noise, they're sitting next to a very loud air conditioner vent or heater vent or something of that nature, that's going to, they're probably going to view that as a disruptive activity and they're going to come in the next day and they may come in early the next day to try to get a different seat. It's the same concept. If you have an experience at a given place that, uh, that is beneficial for you at that point in time, you should go back to it the, the next uh, the next day or the next year, and so I that's that's I mean, it's it's really not that complicated. We see this behavior in in humans. We see it in all sorts of animals. Going back to familiar places, you know where the food is. It's it's predictable. It's reliable, and whenever you create that predictable, whenever you increase the predictability, reliability, and favorableness of that experience you will increase the return rates of birds uh, if we're talking about birds to that location. And so that means trying to provide it as much, uh, as long a period of time as you can and uh, in, in as consistent a fashion as you can. Mike, you mentioned something early on there that I hadn't even considered, and that was body condition uh, of these mallards in February, March. And I know having been on some of these banding projects, you know, you're, you're trying to find a, good body condition hen to attach these units to. Um, and you're right. There's, it seems to be a, a, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, much more frantic effort by these poor condition mallards that time of year than say the, the healthier ones that kind of know that they almost know that they're good. They're okay. Uh, so that's interesting. And it leads me to kind of this question and maybe a different topic. Um, and we had that hard freeze, whatever, two, three years ago, and we we watched, I guess, with these transmitters, a number of birds that were seemingly, you know, good, healthy body condition birds that chose not to fly south and avoid that freeze. They kind of hunkered mm-hmm. down and tried to ride it out. So, what did that surprise you? I mean, I know we had a we had a big die off. We I think Paul Link lost more transmitters in that freeze than he did the entire season. You can't really extrapolate that into how many birds actually died because the transmitter obviously affects their you know their mortality rate in a weather event like that. But what did what did you take from that? What was your thoughts on what happened there? Well, first I want to back up and I want to make sure I'm crystal clear on 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 one thing. I'm not at all <laughs> suggesting. And I know you didn't say this, but I just but I know how people can listen to a podcast and they can hear something different than what was said. Uh, <laughs> I'm not at all suggesting that the birds that Doug or Ryan or or uh, Brad or anybody else that's doing these uh, doing these these great studies, and we're part of those. There's no that we're part of a, several of these studies. Not suggesting at all that the birds that they're capturing in in those situations are not representative or are in poor condition i'm just saying as a scientist and when i respond to your your question i think about um what's going on at that time of the year it makes me wonder about these things and i guarantee you doug and ryan and others have thought about that as well and they're i'm I'm, i would i would be willing to bet that they're looking at that and comparing average body mass under different situations and and so forth and um so just a question. Um, I, I, have, I have I have complete trust in in those researchers to to be doing uh, the the work that needs to be done, asking the right questions, and being aware of all of these different possibilities. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why we all do this is because we're curious. We have curious minds. We're fascinated by these birds. As the the you hear the saying a lot: the more you learn, the more questions you develop. And this is a perfect example of that. Uh, so, uh, just another sort of 
just mental experiment there I did in my mind. And so uh, then getting to your uh, to your to your other uh, question, and I actually I lost it. What was your what, remind me what, what were you wanted me to talk about? <laughs> So I'll, I'll back up too. I'm glad that you you said that because uh, we've got a number of questions and comments that thought Brent and I were advocating for legalizing outfitters on public land from a previous episode. Like, no, no, that was that was not what we were saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they'll run with it. But yeah, that's why those birds are uh, that are caught on the wintering ground like that. That's that's why those hens are getting weighed and measured. Like, uh, I mean, yeah. certainly there are some that are poor condition, but no, they are these are quality specimens that that we're tying all that research to. So yep. um, I think the question was kind of in that freeze event, you know, oh, yeah. you saw the birds kind of react to that. And, and were there any takeaways? Did you see anything that stood out to you? Well, the one thing that I would say is nothing in nature surprises me at this point. Um, it's and in fact, we should expect um, we should expect to see a tremendous amount of variation in what animals do in response to to any kind of event, um, and that's that. These animals have developed the behaviors, the morphological features, and adaptations over a long period of time, and there is variation uh, in anything that you measure in in a uh, in a wild in a population of wild animals bill size lamellar spacing even putting the the game farm issue aside there's some variation in that there's some variation in in the rate at which birds go back um some of those some of that variation is going to be sort of genetically controlled and so what happens in that type of situation birds make decisions animals make decisions in response to certain events whether it's a conscious decision or subconscious or whether it's i, I don't know what that looks like but it happens and and you get for some species or for some individuals you get a different outcome some individuals die they the, there's some group of individuals that for whatever reason chose to stick around some percentage of those birds died um, and this wasn't just waterfowl where we saw this. I think I told the story on one of our episodes in response to that. It's like we saw this with a, with a ton of bluebirds around our place. I mean, I know y'all heard about it as well. And so through the years, what we began to see is more bluebirds staying throughout the staying at their uh, sort of becoming winter residents farther north. Well, as long as you've got cold weather or, or mild weather winter weather that's an advantageous strategy but all of a sudden if you get a uh, it's an advantageous strategy and those birds that uh, that exercise that strategy would be successful and would reproduce and if that strategy is genetically tied and gets passed on then you're, you're going to see an increase in the frequency of with which that happens but then along comes this extreme weather event and it's no longer advantageous. Those birds die off. And so then the frequency of, let's say it's genetically controlled, the frequency of that genetically controlled behavior is reduced in the wild population. I mean, this is kind of the way theoretically it's, uh, well, not theoretically, but this is the way it works. Whether uh, whether that can be measured in that particular instance is a different story. But it didn't surprise me, Kaysen, because we should expect that variation in, in mallards. Um, and some of them chose to to move a little farther south, um, whether they chose to do that or whether they did that in response to some innate drive or whether they did that because of some 
chemical signature there was an interaction of their body condition and something else i don't know i mean i'd, I'd be really fascinated to learn more if i had time about what we understand on decision making so to speak in 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 animals um but you know we can kind of talk about it, it from a conscious decision making and and saying because at that time of the year birds are thinking about breeding they're going to want to get stay as as far north as they can so that's why a lot of them would be would feel that urge to stay and not move south for some of them it worked for others it didn't um and then you'd kind of have to look at those individuals that died versus those that survived try to figure out if there's some pattern there as to why some uh some were successful and, and some weren't and um so it's yeah it, not su- not surprising i guess and just gives us more to think about and um uh, to talk about on a podcast at least yeah now, let me ask you this uh, do you think and this i mean this obviously this has not been studied but i i wonder if if ducks are not as reactionary to these cold weather events like the quote unquote good old days because they don't last as long as they used to, uh, you know, when I was younger, when I was a kid, it seemed like, okay, we, we're getting a cold snap and that the ice be around for a week to 10 days. Well, now ice is around for a couple of days and it's gone uh, or a snow event comes and it, you know, it snows six, eight inches, but then, you know, two, three, four days later, it's 60 degrees again and it's gone. And I wonder, I personally wonder if the ducks have adapted and, and they figured this out that, man, if we just hang tough. For a couple of days, all this will be gone and we'll be back to eating and and doing what we do, being ducks again versus panicking, going desperation is set in. We're about to be locked up for, you know, a week, 10 days and we got to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. And one of the things I think about, Brent, is I, I wonder, is this learned behavior or is it some sort of genetically controlled, truly adaptive um, behavior that we're seeing throughout the population? You know, it's like we're seeing the outcome of of one of those things or a combination of those things. Um, and when I say the outcome, I'm talking about the distribution of these birds, where they are, how long they stay there. Is that a conscious decision? Is that something they learn? I mean, because they can't. They can't forecast the weather. They can't. They don't have a seven or ten day forecast. So, why is that? That we're. I mean, is is it simply that we have milder winters now? Um, I think that's a huge part of it. But in that process, I mean, there's. Yeah, it's. It's like, is it learned or is it just? Is is the increased frequency of that also? a byproduct of the fact that those birds that have chosen to do that are reaping the rewards of that behavior in the context or in light of an increasingly milder winter landscape. And then they're the ones that are more productive. And so it's, is it like this, it, it sort of is, is reinforcing itself. If, if you get what I'm saying, are there some birds that are predisposed genetically or otherwise to stay at more Northern latitudes? And if that staying at more Northern latitudes is more advantageous during milder winters, and if we're getting milder winters, then it's just sort of re those birds are going to be more, more, more productive. Uh, they'll get back to the breeding grounds first. Maybe they'll, yeah, I, so I, I'm, this is a lot of hypothetical stuff here, but you can imagine that maybe this is, is a, it's, 
uh, a reinforcing type of uh, type of thing if it is a truly an adaptive response versus this entirely learned response. And and I don't have the answers to those. I'm just talking out loud and kind of giving you a glimpse into the weird questions that I that I ask uh, sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, you so. could almost I don't know if you could you know almost flip it from you know we're we're going to start getting big ducks mallards here in the next week that uh, they're, yeah. they're they're coming the how the, the the halloween mallards that are by references yeah uh, are, they're coming uh, you know you almost wonder if it, is it the same on the back end is there a group of ducks that is we're out of here and we're not coming back we're we are packing our bags going we're, we're pointing north and we're not turning around and yeah. the, so they can give it to the breeding grounds and and that you know i've heard i've heard waterfowl science community speak about you know, the ducks that get back to the breeding grounds the soonest get the best habitat, you know, which makes total sense. Um, so there's a race on to get back mm-hmm. and find the better habitat. So, you know, you can see why on those things, ducks are not as the modern mallard is not as predicated on their movement by strictly weather. Uh, they they've seemed to have figured out they can hang in and and not be so reactionary. And I guess that's why I asked that whole question because yeah, from from being a hunter, that's what I see. Um, yeah, yeah, and and you know the landscape has changed as well. We've talked about this also. Um, the landscape has changed. There's more resources at these northern latitudes just through the just through um, harvested grain fields, waste grain, and and whether it be uh, corn. I mean, obviously here in uh, in, in the mid south, rice is a is a huge contributor to some of the changes that we've seen in distributions of, of snow geese and white fronts. And then you add disturbance to it and uh, all of these things interact. And And then there's a lot of people through a lot of the research that, that has been conducted over the years. There are people that are managing their lands much better than what we did 30, 40 years ago. And ducks are responding to all of those different factors in a complex interacting way and if if there's a genetic component to it then you know that's that's kind of where my brain is is working now that i'm involved with phil on some of this i I think about uh think about many aspects of waterfowl ecology now with a bit of a of a genetic lens to it um that's going to be one of the fascinating things to look at is as we go forward with this little duck DNA project, are we able to get a sampling of mallards of those Halloween mallards versus a sampling of January mallards? And are there differences and can we identify that? And then if, you know, so it's just a whole bunch of possibilities or is it just strictly driven by, uh, by responses to the, uh, uh, to the, to the environment, to climatic factors and, and landscape factors. Don't know. More questions. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see on the DNA side. I mean, a lot of information that I think will just lead to a, a lot more questions in, in the attempt to identify those things, but exciting for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so you we're, uh, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to, I was going to also somewhat related to the genetics. And it's a topic that, that Case and you and I traded text messages about last year. Uh, we haven't talked about it here yet, but it's uh, avian influenza. You know, that was this time last year, it was something that we had talked about quite a bit on the DU podcast. And I think this was a, it wasn't, it wasn't the opener. It wasn't the early goose season whenever we saw the big outbreak was it it was this dry last year um about this dry maybe it was i don't know you can tell me if it was drier last year if it's drier this year but i think it was the opener of the regular duck season when we saw the the ai um outbreak right yeah it was for us i I know 
when we hunted the early spec season last year, when you guys were here, we had the first rain event that we'd had in 45 days or so. So we were pretty similar trout wise, uh, Yeah, but it definitely exploded on the, uh, when duck season opened there. Yeah. And so the reason I kind of went to AI is there's a potential genetic component to that as well. You know, are, are there differences that we, there has been, has been some research to identify genes that make certain birds more susceptible to various types of avian influenza. So it's, it's a, it's a pretty exciting field of study right now. And I guess I just wanted to, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe avian influenza is, is a topic worth discussing. I haven't actually provided any type of update on that lately, but uh, I think that's a good thing. You know, the fact that we're not talking about it right now <laughs> means that it's pretty quiet out there, uh, at least in the waterfowl world. I know there were some outbreaks on some colonial nesting waterbird colonies in various locations, some in Europe and maybe some in the Northeastern. Nah, I'm not sure exactly where that was, but, but uh, I think for the most part, it's been pretty quiet. That's a good thing. Some of the data that came back from surveillance testing by USDA earlier this summer showed a prevalence rate that was much lower than what they found uh, that same time last year. That's another good thing. Uh, outbreaks at commercial poultry facilities have been way, way down, and that is a really good thing for a whole bunch of reasons. Um so everybody keep your fingers crossed. Um, if you, but if you do see any sick birds out there, I think the, all of what we went through last year will have you equipped to, to make a response, contact your state agency. But uh, hopefully we don't have to deal with that this year. Yeah, I hope not. I'm glad you brought that up. I had that on my mind to ask you about. But that was a very uh, alarming, eye-opening, and, and almost tragic event last year. Yeah. Uh, I know we talked about it a bunch, but just – it's kind of scary to watch unfold in real time. So for sure. Uh, well, I think that kind of wraps it up today. We're about to we'll move into a little segment here that's a, a little lighter and a little more fun. Um, we we'll call it five and five. So we'll give you a couple of quick questions and you can roll with them however you want. I'll uh, I'll go ahead and lead us off here. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, Farm and ranching or home and gardening, light boots are guaranteed game changers. Now available in youth sizes. Which uh, athletic group has broken your heart more, the Mississippi State football team or the Mississippi State baseball team? Oh, wow. Um, so I'm, am I supposed to give my, my quick response on this? You, you can go as long as you want. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Why would I do that? Um <laughs> 
You know, that's a that's a great question. Actually, you know, I could I, I would have to say Mississippi State football, um, and I think I probably because now my expectations for Mississippi State baseball are higher. Now, all right, if you would have asked me this question um, <laughs> prior to what was twenty twenty one, oh, it would have been off the charts. It would have been Mississippi State baseball by far, but the the you know the 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 national championship in 2021 is still very fresh now we've had some horrible past few years um but but yeah it would have been an easy decision uh mississippi state baseball prior to that despite the success you know because you'd gotten so close and your expectations were so high and you never could cross that finish line you know you can never be the greyhound catching the the artificial rabbit you know the the um and but but now I do find myself wondering if we're ever gonna ever gonna get back there. Now Mississippi State football has certainly disappointed me many many times, but I I kind of think that's my own fault because I got my expectations <laughs> right. too high for an unjustified reason. That sounds like a true duck hunter, unreal. <laughs> that's right. No doubt. Yeah. All right, uh, I'll I'll ask you one. Uh, be be a quick. What's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite duck to hunt that is not a mallard? Favorite one to hunt? Um, any of them? Um, yeah. You know. Uh, so you're not you're not you're not a snob towards. No, towards man, a, I think they all offer something. No, you know, there's a lot of ducks that I haven't hunted. I don't have a whole lot of sea duck uh, hunting experience. Um, now, Brant hunting last year is fresh in my mind. That was just an amazing place. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I'm. Um, I'm pretty welcoming of all ducks when it comes to to hunting. Um, now, I, I have people have asked me in the past, "What's my favorite duck?" Uh, just you know, outside of the context of just hunting, and I have to say, wood duck because they're just an incredibly charismatic bird. They are um, home to the place that. Where I grew up, they have saved many a hunt. They are and saved many a hunting season, and they are one of the best tasting birds and more, most consistent tasting birds out there for me. So um, I'm, I'm pretty impartial when it comes to hunting individual species of birds. Um, they each have something to offer, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's the way I'd answer that. Like it. Uh, so I'll continue down that track. What's your What's your preferred state to pursue waterfowl in mm. or, or territory? I guess we'll, we'll go on beyond the, the U S there. Yeah. Um, I would probably say Saskatchewan, um, but I would say Saskatchewan about 10 years ago, things have changed in Saskatchewan um, due to a number of, number of reasons. Uh, we hunted, I had an opportunity to hunt freelance hunt in Saskatchewan, I don't know, four or five years over a period of, of 10 years or so. It was amazing. It was just absolutely amazing. Uh, it was a period of time where there wasn't as much uh, pressure as, I mean, it's still not a lot of pressure. I mean, that's, I mean, it, I'm talking kind of relative to some of what we might think of in, in some of the places where we are down here. Uh, so incredibly vast landscape, but, um, but it was, it was, so easy to get access um they have trespass laws in place there now and you know to be clear we would always ask for permission um 
and never had any problem with it. I haven't been back in the past few years and I understand some of the trespass laws have made things a little bit, a little, a little more difficult, but Saskatchewan in a era 10 years or prior, um, you know, hands down, it's just amazing. It was, it was an absolutely wonderful experience. People are great, abundant birds of all different types. Um, and it, it had everything. And yeah, it's, still a, it's still a wonderful place to go. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but it's, it's just not what it was uh, in what we called the good old days. We, whenever we were out there, uh, we were like, fellas, this isn't going to last. This is too good. Because it was at a period of time where you saw people traveling more to hunt or to mm-hmm. fish or to do those kind of outdoor recreational activities. And that's a great thing. We want people to experience this great place, these great resources. But – Invariably, we see it, whether you're talking big game or upland birds or, or waterfowl, um, it's, it's getting it's, – it invariably leads to constraints when the resource is limited, and, and that is the case, whether we're talking access or the actual animals we're chasing. And so not trying to badmouth any of what has happened. That's not kind of what I'm, I'm here to do, and those decisions are made by folks a lot, lot more engaged than I am. But – um, man, that was a special time, special place. Yeah, it is. I, I went in 2011 and, um, my one and only trip to Saskatchewan and it was, uh, it's something to see. I think it's, it's definitely something even past the hunting part is, is a, as a waterfowler to be able to see where the ducks come from and see what mm-hmm. that landscape really looks like. Um, because you know, the videos and stuff you see don't really do it justice, um, in any way, but, um, yeah, pretty, pretty cool piece of the world for sure. And, uh, we're seeing it at least once. Um, yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. I'll ask you one and, and you can, you can make this one quick. Cause I know we got a timeline, uh, but what is one thing ducks unlimited does uh, you know to benefit waterfowl or waterfowlers that doesn't get a whole lot of publicity well you would probably i don't know you you probably wouldn't be surprised but uh i it i am sometimes surprised at the number of people that think we don't do work on public land um we do a ton of work on public land that benefits birds as well as uh, the waterfowl hunters. Um, we are uh, we're, we're trying to to increase the visibility of that kind of work. We got a lot of resources out there on the website, um, so that that tell where we work, how much we spend in states, um, how much um, how how many projects we've done on public land, and you know so. I have to go there. I mean, we are doing working with partners, federal state partners to enhance and and provide new waterfowl habitat and habitat for hunters on on places that they can access because we know access is one of the most limiting resources. We uh, we probably don't talk and and ha- we haven't figured out a way yet. I think it's it's fair to say this. We haven't figured out a way yet to communicate that as clearly and and um and comprehensively as we need to. Like I can go into our project database and see all of the different projects that we've done on a WMA or WMA uh, portfolio in Louisiana or Mississippi or or Oregon or where Texas, wherever the case may be. Um but 
for some reason we 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 just haven't figured out a way um we haven't figured out the most effective venue for getting that information to the people that are looking for it or else they just don't care to look for it so maybe it's that too <laughs> that could be true yeah so that's probably an underappreciated thing uh for for a yeah. lot of people but but it is front and center of for us in working with those partners that uh, provide that public access. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's it's always amazing to me the, the underappreciated or just uh, outright incorrect things people believe about the uh, Tux Unlimited sometimes. So uh, glad you brought that one to light there. We're going to, I guess, wrap up with our final question. Um, what is one thing that you would change about duck hunting if you could change anything? Oh, man. What would I change? Um, so I think I'll, I'll probably offer another one. I wish there was a way that we could accelerate the pace at which people go from being new hunters to conservationist. I wish there was a way we could do that because I think it's and not everybody. It's not the path that everybody follows. It was the path that I followed. I'll be the first to to say it. It was the path that my dad followed. He was a hunter before he was a conservationist. I was a hunter before I was a conservationist. That's okay. That is the path that a lot of people will take. Uh, and, and I think that's a great thing. If there was a way that we could accelerate the pace at which people get to that conservationist um, um, mindset and um, – I th I think that's that's what I would change. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I work for Ducks Unlimited. That's one of the things that we try to do um, is is emphasize the importance of giving back to this resource to make sure that people that come along behind us still have the opportunities that we've had. Um, so I I don't have the. Um, I don't have the silver bullet for that, and I don't think there is a silver bullet. I think it's a, a number of different tactics that have to be implemented through a number of different platforms because we have a host of different audiences uh, that we're trying to reach. Um, but uh, but that's yeah, th that's one that I mean I could probably come up with a better a better answer, but that's just that's uh, one of the first ones that came to mind there. No, and that's a good one, and that's a big part of why the two of us do this particular show. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously stewardship is immensely important to both of us, uh, you know, trying to leave it better than you found it, that kind of, that kind of mindset. And, and yeah, so the sooner somebody can turn the corner on that and understanding you can be both, you mm -hmm. can, you can, you can harvest, a, uh, you know, a pile of ducks every day, but, but at the same time on the flip side of that, you gotta, you gotta care about them. You can't just care about killing right. ducks. You gotta care about ducks. Right. Um, and that's what you're saying is basically equates to that. And that's the sooner we can get more people to, to see it that way. Um, just being other than just being concerned about numbers and pile pictures and, and everything else that we see and get so much attention, that's, what's going to make the sport turn the corner yeah. and, and, and build back to, you know, we're, so a lot of it, we can't, we don't have anything to do with, we talk about those factors all the time, but there are some things we can and, Anything we can do to help help those ducks and geese out—that's what we we need to be doing, and to still have a lot of fun hunting them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, it's it's more important now than ever to do that, Brent and Kaysen, because we know that a lot of the folks that have been in this, that have been hunters and are conservationists, are are, are in the older age bracket. 
and those folks are fading from from our ranks. Um, That's a great point. And and we're we, we're bringing a lot of new folks into uh, into our community. That's a great thing. But one of the other things that comes with and so it, it would lead to the natural question: Well, what do you mean by a conservationist? And there's a lot of different definitions for that. But I'm really thinking about a person that goes above and beyond to devote their time and their their financial resources and their their voice to advocating for waterfowl management, uh, for resources at their state agency level, for resources at the federal level, because it's those type of decisions, that kind of support that that I think is really, really important. And you know, whenever you um, you know, yes, join uh, conservation organizations such as uh, Ducks Unlimited, you know, I'd have to say, and, and any others that you might might uh, connect with, but but also advocating to your state, federal officials uh, about waterfowl, waterfowl management, um, any of the different aspects of this waterfowl management community uh, as something that you value and that is important to you. And when you, when you indicate to your, to your, um, your, your politicians that it's, it's something that is important to you, then it becomes important to them. And they're the ones that make some of these super important decisions that affect the resources, financial resources, personnel resources, uh, think just national wildlife refuges and the difficulties that they're having, keeping up and managing some of their properties and staffing their properties. Those things have uh, have sort of knock-on effects to waterfowl and waterfowl hunters. Those are the type of decisions that you influence by communicating and advocating to your legislators at the state and federal level. And so that's the thing that that we lose, certainly from a conservation community, as those people fade from our ranks. And we have to really backfill that to get those people to provide that energy at an earlier age. Um, to so, so that's kind of what I was I was thinking to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Awesome stuff. Very good. Well, Mike, we sure appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I know you've got a, a meeting to run to, and, and somehow, remarkably, Case and I have managed to get you out on time, which <laughs> I appreciate. We, yeah, we've had a few string string out there pretty good, and and had to do some some serious editing. But this one, we uh, it, maybe it helped to tell us that you had a time to be out on, so we kept it kept it rolling pretty good. But we do appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, definitely appreciate all of our listeners and, of course, our sponsors that allow us to put this thing on. Uh, if you got time, give us a follow on the social media. That's at The Standard Sportsman. Uh, the website is www.thestandardsportsman.com. And uh, tell all your friends about it, and hopefully they'll give us a listen, too. We can build this audience and start uh, producing more good messages like Mike passed along today. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys.